Hello and welcome back to The Kids Table, a podcast where we discuss all things child development with a research and a policy bent. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Haley. We're a researcher and a policy analyst, and we're translating the science of child development for the public, and we're integrating it with policy, practice, and some trends in tech and business. Each month, we start with covering the latest in cutting-edge research, popular media, and in the policy sphere, and then we pop to a guest portion where you get to hear straight from an expert about the incredible work that they're doing in developmental science. It has been quite a busy couple of months, and there is a lot to unpack here, so pull up your suitcases. And a- <laughs> much of <laughs> Thanks, you like that joke? I love that. <laughs> much of what has been going on is really relevant to our guest for this episode, Dylan, who is an equity training specialist in the Philadelphia School District. Totally. And I think one of the first places that I want to start uh, is with the notion that diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, as Dylan will unpack for us later in the episode, those efforts around promoting DEI have been long contended, I think, in the public discourse and uh, definitely a contentious issue in the political sphere. And it runs the full gambit of policy issue areas from education to the workplace and weirdly to defense. In fact, House Republicans have been battling it out with Democrats over this year's draft of the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, which is a must-pass piece of legislation that gets re-upped each year. In that draft, Republicans have proposed cutting off funding for DEI programs, forcing a review of DEI initiatives, and eliminating the Pentagon's chief diversity officer altogether. Deep sigh. (sighs) (laughs) So... Okay, the must pass means that it has to get voted on in order to continue, right? Yeah, it's a matter of national security. Every year, the NDA is a piece of must pass legislation. And what does that conversation or argument typically look like? Like, what's the rationale here for rolling back all of these diversity efforts aside from, I assume, racism? Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> racism is a primary factor. It's, that's kind yeah. of hard to hard to deny. But I also think that there's a lot of lack of understanding about our own history as a country, mm-hmm. a misinterpretation of the experience of marginalized people. And this sense, I think, that somehow issues of race and diversity belong in some spheres, but not others, which is why we treat it as collectively, I think myself included, treat it as this like very sensitive issue or that it's very contentious Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, only appropriate in certain lights, but not others. And uh, I had the privilege of joining some of my colleagues at the Senate committee hearing on childcare last month, in which a senator from Oklahoma raising a complaint about the teaching of race in preschool curriculum using a book called Our Skin said, and I quote, I don't want reality. I don't want reality. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It provoked a round of laughter in the chamber. And I, yeah. I, you know, the senator has since walked it back and said that he misspoke. But I think ultimately what the senator was doing was saying the quiet part out loud. Uh, that people who have positional authority, who enjoy the benefits of the majority, don't want to face the reality of how harmful it can be to a member of the minority in a society that prizes that kind of power. Okay, so this is like the cover your eyes, I can't see this kind of colorblind approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It kind of is a colorblindness thing. Yeah, and we it goes without saying, we already know that this approach is harmful for young children. Um, so young children see and understand race much earlier than I think most adults probably realize. Um, I think a lot of parents wait until their kids are closer to maybe five or six to have conversations about race if they're having them at all. Um, But we know from research that infants as young as a couple months old 
already are showing that they recognize race um, and sometimes have racial preferences, especially um, for people who look like them because it's what they're familiar with and what they know. Um, so it's not supported by what we know about research for sure. Right. And already, I mean, we've talked about this in past episodes too, like already there are disparities and inequities in terms of how we treat the topic of race, like families of color have no choice but to have that conversation with their kids. And so I wish I could remember off the top of my head, like the name of uh, the person who wrote this paper, but she framed it in terms of like the talk that parents might have with their kids. Yeah. Uh, and immediately right. I think most people's minds go to like, Oh, the birds and the bees. Like that's what you talk about with your kid, you know, yeah. you know as an adolescent, but mm-hmm. no, she was actually talking about like you as a person of color, my child as a person of color are going to enter a very racialized society. And you're going to have to acknowledge right now that that is going to be a factor that affects your experience going through the world. Yeah, exactly. And I'm thinking too about the consequences of not acknowledging it or not having those conversations, right? Like it means then going into a world and having a experience later in life where it's like, oh, okay, like this is going to be an issue. And I think raising that consciousness early is a way to um, protect and also to promote positive development for kids of color. And I think ultimately benefit all children. Absolutely. It's something we talked about in our episode with Kevin last year with multiculturalism. We talked about it with your sister, Tara. And it's really through, you know, those conversations that I I learned even more about the importance of having those windows and mirrors into people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important too, to recognize that even for very, very young children who are recognizing racial characteristics and are showing some of those like very early, more nebulous, like a sense of, of racial preference still aren't necessarily moving to that next level where they're overlaying specific characteristics or stereotypes or assumptions about race on an entire group of people. And that, I think, is something that can steamroll into a more pernicious outlook on race, good or bad, right? When when we make assumptions that are both good and bad about an entire racial category, it can be problematic. So yeah, ignoring children's attention to those differences actually means that we may unintentionally be perpetuating and contributing to the racial beliefs that they form. Totally. I think too, in that same study about the infants recognizing race, I think there was also a group that they looked at like multiracial kids or or kids who are monoracial, but who had exposure in their families. Um or like close friends of like different races of people. Um, and they don't show the same preferences, which I think is super interesting, which is which is suggesting that having um, diversity around you at literally three months is shaping the way your brain. That really is incredible. Okay, so in developmental research, there's this general consensus that talking about race is an important mechanism for undercutting how racial stereotypes are formed and having exposure to lots of different kinds of important figures in your life is also really important for shaping those early beliefs. This is why books like Our Skin that the senator from Oklahoma took such objection to is actually a really helpful tool for anti-bias education. Yeah, absolutely. And because these positive attitudes about fairness and equity can be developed and honed through media representation through who you go to school with, what people around you look like, um, and banning books or um, reducing opportunities for equity and exposure to others who don't look like us is a way to perpetuate negative stereotypes. Yeah, of course. 
And we wouldn't be keeping up with the times if we didn't talk about the recent Supreme Court decision to overturn affirmative action. I know a lot of people have mixed feelings about it, even people of color who may themselves have benefited from affirmative action in the past. I'll note this is the law passed in the late 1970s that worked to level the playing field between equally qualified applicants of different racial backgrounds. But I think it's really important to note that this was a critical mechanism for helping to level that playing field, right? And mm-hmm. Sotomayor, I think, really said it beautifully in her dissent. She wrote, and I quote, entrenched racial inequality remains a reality today. Ignoring race will not equalize a society that is racially unequal. What was true in the 1860s and again in 1954 is true today. Equality requires an acknowledgement of inequality. I love that. And I so agree. That's so beautifully put. And I think that's why it's so important to have people who are working towards equity. People like Maya, who we interviewed a few months ago, organizations that have equity baked into their mission are doing a lot of this hard work. And that's part of why I'm so excited today to talk to Dylan to hear more about what he's doing. I love it. And I'm also excited. You want to bring in our guest? Let's do it. Today, we're pleased to welcome Dylan Van Dyne to the table this month. Dylan is an equity training specialist within the School District of Philadelphia. He has his bachelor's degree from Cornell, where we met, and a master's in education policy from the University of Pennsylvania. In addition to his current role, Dylan and I work together as course instructors for eCornell, where we lead online DEI certification courses about dialogue across difference and strategic change in the workplace. And when Dylan is not working to better the next generation through connection building and bias breaking, he loves working as a fitness instructor and spending time in Philly. So Dylan, so great to see you today. I'm really excited to learn more about what you do. It's really, really wonderful to connect with you, Dylan. I love having the opportunity to meet um, all of the amazing people that Caitlin has met through her experiences. So very glad to have this conversation today. Um, I wonder if you could just sort of start at the basics for us and do a little bit of level setting. I think there are a lot of people out and about in the world who are at the very least familiar with the acronym DEI and have maybe a sense in their minds of what, what that means, what that stands for, and how they might be connected to it. But what what would you say is the definition of DEI? Like, how should we frame this conversation around that concept? Thank you for having me. Haley, it's nice to meet you. And Caitlin, it's always great to connect with you. Um, Starting with DEI, uh, it stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. So many listeners to the podcast might be familiar uh, to the phrase, diversity asks who's in the room. Equity responds who's trying to get in the room but can't, whose presence in the room is under constant threat of erasure. And inclusion asks, has everyone's ideas been heard? So in our role, in our department, we focus a lot on the E in DEI, equity, uh, right? Thinking specifically, what are the barriers in place that have gotten in the way of our historically marginalized staff and students? Uh, And for our department, it's really important for people to understand when we talk about equity, we're not talking about equality, right? So folks that argue for equality within education come from a framework and a lens of making sure every student has the same resource. Um, For us, in our context, in a historically Black and Latinx context, and historically poor context, right? Thinking specifically about students receiving the supports that they need for their specific identity. It's going to look different uh, based on race. It's going to look different based on socioeconomic status, ability status, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I really appreciate how you break down the D and the E and the I for us. And just as a moment of clarity too, I have heard so many different acronyms. I think we've joked about this before. There's DEI, there's REDI, there's JEDI or JEDI. 
Um, and I'm sure there's so many more different frames for thinking about these same topics. So I guess, why are there so many? <laughs> and how do these labels affect the work that we do and how we think about them? Mm-hmm. There certainly are many. I'm learning more all the time. <laughs> so <laughs> asking this. Um, let's start with READY, because uh, these are agreements that we use in our work. Uh, so as you named racial equity, diversity and inclusion. Um, so for contexts like mine uh, that are predominantly Black and Latinx, uh, it's, I believe, is necessary and crucial to start equity with racial equity conversations. Mm-hmm. So of course, folks are likely familiar, right? When we talk about equity, we can talk about racial equity, gender equity, sexual orientation equity, socioeconomic status equity. Um, in our context, thinking about the original source of oppression being race and thinking about public education being built on structures of systemic racism, Um, we intentionally start talking about racial equity. Um, And those agreements, ready agreements, I encourage folks uh, to look them up if they're not familiar, are specific in thinking about how does race show up in different spaces. Um, To your point, uh, JETI is one that I was not as familiar with up until a year ago. Um, But for engaging in conversations with folks recently that use the J uh, and pay the homage and attention to justice, um, I appreciate that a specific attention in our district, our de- equity definition serves as the bedrock for which we can achieve prosperity, liberation, and justice. Uh, so I appreciate those organizations that are thinking about, right, what is the J? What is the justice? How does that show up in our work? Um, what I would caution against um, is for folks, uh, D and I, uh, meaning diversity and inclusion, um, right, just making sure that if that is going to be the acronym that's used for an organization or a spaces initiatives, making sure that there still is a grounding of equity in that work, right? We're not just stopping at who's in the room. We're not just stopping at who's included in the conversation. We're also thinking about who historically has been excluded, who historically has not been offered a seat at the table. What are the barriers that exist within my institution that are preventing that person from having a voice in that conversation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you finding in the course of your work that when people are adopting these different acronyms that they're approaching solving this problem differently? Like I, I, I can see it maybe for ready, like having a specific racial equity lens when they're approaching this work, but for Jedi or for any of the other acronyms, is that sort of coloring the lens that people are bringing to the table when they, when they approach these issues? Yeah, it's interesting because I have found like a level of intentionality with, for example, I I met someone the other day that identified uh, as a chief of uh, EDI, equity, diversity, Mm -hmm. and and the shift being that the E comes first. Right. So to my understanding with Jetty as well, for some folks, like the J comes first. And with that intention of this is what we're leading with. Um, I certainly think, especially as it relates to the E being included in these um, acronyms, that it does inform um, right the positionality of people in this work that's saying, like, we're not going to just stop. I'm sure many folks are familiar with different company efforts of D and I, maybe not in the education space, maybe in different spaces where folks have voiced that they felt performative. Folks, folks have voiced that they felt like the D and I diversity and inclusion efforts have not led to systemic change, have not actualized policy changes, practices um, that have advanced equity within the workforce. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do think that language carries power and I think there's value in thinking about what are the words that we're going to use. I think about for our district, like the equity definition was something uh, that an equity coalition of 300 people around um, put time into thinking about like how do we specifically as a district want to define equity? Because to the points that you both have made, it looks different in different contexts, both from the actual initials and the words being used, as well as to the implementation. Yeah, I appreciate your thinking around some of the implications, too, because I, I totally agree that E component. It reminds me a lot of the, the strategic 
change course that, um, you know, that we do. It's like there has to be this action component. It's like a call to action, right? And what exactly does that look like? What are the barriers? So I like that it's like both this conceptual understanding, it like puts it in a societal context, and then it's like, and then us, the actors, we are agentic and what do we do? Um, and on the topic of the school districts that you work for, um, t- can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you do, how you got into it, and a little bit about your why? What what kind of spark led you to this work? Yes, I'm going to start more current, and then I'm going to trace back in terms of my I why. <laughs> <laughs> I started teaching uh, fall 2018 after graduating from Cornell, uh, where Caitlin and I met. Um, I started teaching at a predominantly Black and Latinx high school in Hyde Park, Massachusetts. For folks familiar with the area, it's just about 15, 20 minutes south of Boston. Uh, So I taught 10th grade Spanish there for three years. And then in my three years, I also taught an elective about uh, LGBTQ identity and social justice education. In both of those spaces, I saw the inequities that my students faced. So thinking about like racially, my Black and Latinx students, thinking about in terms of sexual orientation, my queer students, my students with disabilities, my English language learners. Uh, right? How are each of my students experiencing education differently? What are the barriers that each of those students face? Uh, how are questions of access and inclusion uh, different for different um, student groups? Uh, so that made me start to think and kind of zoom out, right? What are the policies that exist within education that either support or do not support marginalized students? So I applied to a master's program at Penn Graduate School of Education. And I was thinking specifically about the myriad of policy factors. I know you've talked about many of them uh, throughout the podcast and in the intro, right, inside and outside of the classroom. What are the different barriers that are in play uh, right now in education, specifically for the most marginalized students? Um, So I started uh, my current role in the district in June 2022. I just celebrated my one-year anniversary, and it's with the school district. (laughs) Thank you. Um, so we are a fairly new department as well. So I celebrated my one year anniversary. Our department celebrated its two year anniversary, uh, just this week. Um, and I'll speak a little bit more later in terms of department wide, right? What the scope of the work we do is. Um, but I want to go back actually way back to the beginning because my why in education, I came into college actually as pre-med, uh, which I think many folks don't know about Such me. Such a common story. We oh. could go down that <laughs> rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> My why has everything to do with my mom, has everything to do with my grandpa, or yeah, yeah, that's what we say Mm -hmm. uh, in Chinese. My mom's an immigrant from Taiwan, and she moved to the States in pursuit of a better public education for her kids. Uh, So for her, growing us was always uh, very much first and foremost thinking about where we came from, thinking about our why, and I mean like collective why, like why me and my Mm -hmm. siblings are here, literally, and then also uh, to make the most of our opportunity. Um, I'm very privileged to have attended a public school with a level and quality of education that's not accessible to all. Um, I'm where I am today due in large part to the educational opportunities that that K through 12 education afforded me because that was the stepping stone then to go to pursue my bachelor's to pursue my master's. All right. So I know for folks listening to the podcast, we're aware of like the importance of that K through 12 education. So my purpose then, once I realized I wanted to go education was to think about that opportunity that my mom brought me. How can I make sure that that's an opportunity that all students feel like they have access to? How do all students K through 12 and then in the college and university space, right, feel like education is truly a space and community where they feel seen and heard and they feel like they have access to the resources that will support them to succeed. So with that, that brought me to my current role. So our department was founded in July 2021. For folks familiar with the School District of Philadelphia, or as we call it, SDP, uh, this department was founded under Dr. Height. Uh, so I'm currently one of eight equity training specialists. That's one of the department positions, um, and we're very school-facing. 
So I'm one of eight people that directly support schools, learning networks, which are basically groups of schools, and then the district. So the reason why in our district we have learning networks is there's 217 schools in the school wow. district of Philadelphia. That's a lot <laughs> so, of schools. <laughs> there's a lot of schools. And as you can imagine, right, it's challenging sometimes when you're trying to implement different policies. Um, right. How do we do that? How do we scaffold that district-wide? So there's 15 different learning networks, and each of those learning networks has an assistant superintendent that resides over that learning network. For the most part, it has to do with region. For the most part, it has to do with are you K through five, K through eight, nine through 12. Um, but I support two of those 15 learning networks, meaning I support around 34 schools out of the 217. My colleagues support the rest. So we're really focused on building capacity at that individual school level. The why being, as I'm sure many folks can relate to, when we think about DEI efforts, equity work in general, and we try and do it from a top-down approach, right? A lot of the times, not only is it not effective, it's also not including the voices of those most affected. Yeah. So for me and my role, I am first and foremost a coach, secondly, a facilitator, right? How do I coach teams and individuals? So thinking individual and also systems level so that schools feel like they have the skills, the knowledge, and the mindset to be able to do this work. If I'm doing my job really well, it looks like at the end of the year, right, those teachers, the staff within the school, the school leaders feel like they can then facilitate that professional development for their staff. It feels like they're unable to actualize change in the ways that they want to see. Of course, we have district level initiatives that I'm involved with as well and network level initiatives uh, to dismantle the structures that hinder student achievement and well-being. Um, but what really fills my cup as a former teacher right, is working with those individual schools and thinking about, okay, Every school has different goals. Every school has different students. Every school has different needs. So how can we make sure we're meeting all of those needs in a specific and supportive way? Go ahead, Caitlin. You have such a cool job. <laughs> There's like, I feel like, um, you know, I hear from a lot of teacher friends, like they teach for a while and they're like, oh, I want to make a systems level impact, right? So then they go into policy. And then I hear friends in policy who are like, oh, like I missed that one-on-one -on -one connection with students, right? And so what strikes me as really cool about your job is you have this really unique position of influence where you both get that one-on-one -on -one kind of individual training and coaching, and you also work with, did you say 34 schools? I think Haley's jaw dropped. She has a lot of schools. Um, so it's so cool that you get to bridge both of the worlds. It really is. I'm curious about what the like outcome measures look like like at the at the end of the school year i i'm imagining that you have you know these conversations with the superintendents and maybe with teachers and staff in the schools to sort of see like how are you implementing the things that we have instilled you know in in this learning network and i love also that you describe your role as both coach and facilitator that you're teaching a set of skills and then also helping to sort of like shepherd them along throughout the year but i'm curious about what what those outcomes actually look like like how do you, what do metrics of success feel like to you mm -hmm. it looks both quantitative and qualitative uh, so district-wide and i'll speak to these surveys a little bit later we have two surveys that we use that are really important and impactful and in informing our district's equity work so the first is called the philly school experience survey it's an annual survey that gets mm -hmm. administered every may um, and it has questions specifically around equity and inclusion questions sound like adults at my school address uh issues related to race in the media when they arise um, the equity professional learning administered at my school was high quality and of value, right? So like specific metrics to think about, like, are adults in this school building, uh, doing so to speak the things that they're being asked to do when we think about equity professional learning. Another example would be adults from my school care about my students, uh, race, culture, and ethnicity. Um, and then there's the student well-being survey, 
uh, which has been a big push of our district recently. As I'm sure folks are familiar listening to the podcast, right, there's been such a big push on academic data, uh, especially COVID and a lot of rhetoric around learning loss, a lot of rhetoric around academic outcomes. Uh, what I always say to quote Brene Brown is yes and, like yes, yes. yes. Yeah. We need to focus on academic outcomes, especially amongst the most marginalized. When we think about reading scores, when we think about math scores for black and brown youth, of course we need to make sure we're focusing on advancing academic achievement. And we can't do that if we're not focused on how do students feel in school? Do students feel like they belong? Do students yeah. feel like their voice is heard? Right. So the student well-being survey, every quarter we administer it, and there's three sets of questions. So the first is adult student, which is really what we focus on in this equity work with adults, right? Those are questions like an adult uh, cares about me. An adult asks me how I'm doing today. I have an adult I can talk to about my feelings, right? The second type of a question is peer-peer relationship. You can imagine those sound like, I have friends at school. Uh, I feel safe at school. Um, and then the um, Last category is self-development. So that's thinking about for students, right? Socio-emotionally, right? What are the different strategies that they feel like they have? Of course, post-COVID, we know the importance of questions like, uh, I was able to deal with my feelings in a healthy way. Yeah. I was able to help solve a conflict, right? Some of these questions around like, what are the actual like regulation skills? And that's definitely a need that we've seen across the district coming off of online learning, especially like from a counseling perspective, from an all staff perspective, how do we support students and be able to navigate some of those emotions? I say all that to say, we then take all those scores and then we look at how does that differ across racial subgroup? How does that differ across disability status? How does that differ across English language learning? And then from that, that will inform the school-based equity work, right? And there's a school, I can think of one, an example I worked with and supported, they found that their black and Latinx females were supporting, uh, were reporting, excuse me, lower rates of adult student relationships. In other words, they were not feeling like they had adults in the building as high of a rate as to males and other racial subgroups, right? That they feel like they can trust, that they feel like care about them. Mm -hmm. So then with that school, uh, the leaders actually sat down with several groups of students and did student focus groups and then did some digging, right? As folks certainly know the quantitative is helpful and like how can we do some of that qualitative work and hear directly from the voices of students and then use the outcomes of that focus group to then make some shifts school-wide. So that's kind of a very like micro level example. The other uh, thing that came to mind in talking about outcomes, right, was in general, right, how do you assess outcomes for coaching? Uh, and what I did recently was do focus groups with adults. So we did equity team focus groups and we sat down and I asked basically three sets of questions. Number one, uh, right, what were some of the outcomes for you on a self level? Like what did you learn in this process? Number two, what were some of the outcomes uh, when we think about that student level? What did you see in students? And then number three, what were some of the outcomes when you think about adults in your building? Mm -hmm. um, when you look at your staff engaging, for example, as we all know, when it comes to, I shouldn't make that assumption, as many folks might be familiar in equity work, it's one thing to have the content. And then it's another thing when you see something happening, if there's an interaction that's happening that is biased, if there's an interaction that's happening that's exclusive language, not inclusive, right? Is it going to be addressed? So I think that's the other piece, right? Are we seeing growth, not just adult student, 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 are we seeing growth adult, adult? Mm -hmm. right, so I sat down with the teams and I could talk for length at some of the findings, but they were all, I mean, super positive and I think really affirming of the importance of this work. I'll share a high level overview on that self level. Folks felt like this work really allowed them to learn a lot more about who they are and how they show up. 
So being engaged in this work, right? Thinking about how does my gender impact my day-to-day practice? How does my race impact my day-to-day practice? What's all the learning that I still have to do? That was, of course, one big takeaway is like, we are on this journey, but there's still so much to do. Um, and then the student piece I'll talk to a little bit later as well. Yeah. I I love your job already. I just think this is the coolest work. Um, and I, I have a self-serving question. I, I hope that it resonates and that there's, you know, maybe kernels of, of resource or, or uh, takeaways for other folks who may be in a similar position. But as a white person, I have the benefit of many different kinds of privilege in our society. I've had access to economic resources and educational resources um, that I think color my perspective in very obvious ways. Um, and I and one of those is that I'm often aware of this balance that I try to strike between taking ownership of a problem created by white people, perpetuated largely by white people in the systems that we have instituted, while also trying not to dominate a conversation that I'll never totally understand the direct impact of as compared to a person of color who lives this through everyday experience. So it's, you know, how do I take steps to fix this? How do I engage in this problem without just like turning it into yet another space that that white people are, you know, totally whitewashing. So I guess my question is, who do you think largely owns the work of DEI? And what's your view on how people can be better allies? I really appreciate this question. The question around who owns the work of DEI, um, I would lead by sharing, I strongly believe the work of DEI has to be collective. um, And it has to include the voices of everyone in the community. In our district's equity definition, We define equity as working to cultivate prosperity and liberation for students and staff, starting with historically marginalized populations by removing barriers, increasing access and inclusion, building trusting relationships, and creating a shared culture of social responsibility and organizational accountability. I want to draw specific attention to that last phrase, right? Shared culture, social responsibility, and organizational accountability. Uh, It has to be shared. And that's something I focus on a lot with schools. For us to move forward as schools and as a district, as an institution, forward in the path of justice and equity, right? We have to share this responsibility and it might look different based off different identities. So I appreciate the point about allyship uh, because traditionally I found folks understand allyship to be a white person in a BIPOC space, a cis male person, right? In a space with other genders. Uh, We define ally in our district as a person actively seeking to unite or form a connection for the common purpose of equity. And it might be within affinity or it might be across difference. Uh, So we see that, right, within affinity, think about white ally spaces, cis male ally spaces, right, straight ally spaces, Um, uh, excuse me, that would be across difference, being an ally with folks that have a a different identity. The affinity example um, I would use for myself as a cis uh, gay male, right, thinking about how do I serve as an ally within my own community. Um, I think that there's many examples we could think of different intersectionalism, but as a cis gay man, there are certain privileges that I share, even being queer, right? So within my community, then how can I still be an ally as well? So overall, what I would say for folks too, is right, just starting with self. Um, that's something that we really emphasize, like for us to do community level, like liberatory work, we have to start on the individual level. Like, what are the identities that I hold? How is that impacting how I show up in a space, even as nuanced as something like a community agreement in a meeting, right? Something like experiencing discomfort we ask folks to expect to experience discomfort and it's something that out loud like that might sound self-explanatory people are listening they might be like yeah that's something that we talk about in our workforce Uh, i really encourage folks like really to lean into that i'll speak for myself certainly i have experienced like some of those like really 
uh, intense feelings of discomfort at different points in my like early and still ongoing journey in different parts of my identity. And a lot of that is like, we have been socialized to believe certain things. We have been socialized uh, in the consumption of media, in education, right? In our different spheres that we walk through uh, since we were born. So we're doing this like great unlearn, I know is what a lot of people call it. And to do that and to be better allies, like we have to go back to, okay, these are all of the things that I've been taught. I think a lot of the times it looks like listening first and <laughs> listening to the voices of different people within our community um, that are marginalized. But the one resource I would really point people to, to really understand allyship in a visual way, for all the visual learners out there, it's called the ladder of activism. I really recommend looking it up and using it in your respective spheres of influence. Uh, what I really appreciate on this ladder is if you can visualize the very first rung that you step on on the ladder, right, is allyship. It's the first step. It's not the last step. And I really appreciate that because I think a lot of folks uh, use the word allyship, uh, not with any intention, I think, to be harmful, but to refer to it as kind of the end goal, right? Like we want to work towards a place of allyship. What I appreciate about this ladder is allyship is the first step, right? And that is simply just accepting uh, the existence and the, um, the rights and the voices of marginalized folks. The next steps are advocating, being an activist and being an accomplice. Uh, right. So that advocating piece is where we're really pushing a lot of folks, uh, encouraging uh, to come along on that journey. Right. When you see something hacked, advocate, speak up. Right? That's that action piece. Activists, of course, as we know, that's more towards that organizing piece and that ongoing commitment. Um, but I really appreciate this because I think it kind of puts us in this like visual where we move out of the place of saying, like, I have to get towards a place of allyship. It's like, let's get there to start and let's ground ourselves there and then let's continue working together. Right. So allyship is the bare minimum, <laughs> just be present and listen and then do the work there from there. And one thing, Dylan, that I was really excited about hearing you talk about a minute ago that I want to loop back to is just how much data that your school district has. As a research scientist, I'm just yes. sitting here like, wow, they have like survey items. They have what? all these kinds of data. They have like, um, you know, effects based on gender and race, which like we would do a whole moderator analysis on. So it's just so exciting to see like what a you know, data-driven approach it's taking and how rich that data is. Are you part of that process of kind of analyzing and reporting? Where does that go? How does it, what, where, what uh, stakeholders do you share the data with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, our department is involved, I'd say, in two primary ways. So the first is we directly partner with the Office of Research and Evaluation, who are the folks uh, that design the surveys. I'm actually meeting with them tomorrow. So it's timely that you ask this um, <laughs> You're going to be so ready. Feedback around like the questions themselves, right? Like are the questions themselves reflecting values, yeah. equity, and inclusivity? One great example is one of the questions this year was um, that the child feels like he, she has someone at uh, his, her school that they can trust, right? So just that language shift of a child feels like they have an adult that they can trust. Um, and then of course, like demographically, uh, it's just providing different feedback on things like gender identity options, like what's being listed, what's not listed. Um, the big exciting news and how we partnered with them is that for the first time this year, we'll have access at my department level uh, to queer students, so LGBTQ students, and then also trans students and their responses to different questions around adult student relationships. So something like adults from my school care about me we could take that question and now for the first time disaggregate by gender identity outside of cis female, cis male, or we'll see trans students, we'll see non-binary students, and we'll be able to disaggregate by sexual orientation. So that's really exciting because as I'm sure you all know, in the data field, like there are not huge yeah. 
data sets out there for folks to think about LGBTQ students' feelings of belongingness. Um, and then the other big way that we partner in terms of the data piece is we really yeah. work heavily and work with climate and culture as well, who own the student well-being survey, um, to think about at a school level, at a student level, at a community level, how are we presenting this data in a way that's accessible? Um, I'm sure folks are going to resonate with this idea. Like sometimes we collect data and then it might live in like an academic space, but then it might not actually make it back to the community that the data was like solicited from. Yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah, such a big problem. We have this data and it's so impactful. So what I think a lot about, what my department thinks a lot about from a professional learning standpoint is, okay, how are we going to present this in a way that's going to feel both accessible and also high impact? Because if we have a 90-minute training with teachers too, as we all know, time is like the most valuable resource in education. So how can we really dive in and think about this data in a way that's um, going to be time efficient, going to be accessible for people? Um, and I also think, so the piece I said about presenting to students, that's really important too, because students, as the one taking a lot of these surveys, they'll take the survey and then they'll be like, you know, Mr. Van Dyke, that for? That's <laughs> I mean, take. So we found a lot of success in that in our schools that have done that in students being like, whoa, like, first of all, like you listen to me, mm -hmm. like A, like my voice was heard. And then B, especially when staff open up a space, say something during a community meeting, as example, um, and then actually have a dialogue with students around, for example, you answered this percent yes, this percent no to the question, adults from my school care about me just to stick with that same example, right? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about like for the folks that said no, like what is part of the why behind that? Like what is missing? What would it look like for an adult to care about you? And starting those conversations as early as third grade because third graders are the youngest grade to take the survey. I think it's so fundamental when we think about socio-emotional learning, right? For students to be able to articulate yeah. care for me looks like this, like care for me or another question, I was treated unfairly on the basis of something yeah. like identity, right? For students to be able to say, this is what it looked like for an adult to treat me unfairly. Yeah. Wow. I like love that so much. I'm like getting chills. I'm just like picturing like as an eight-year-old how I would feel. I would feel important. I would feel like, you know, like my needs and feelings were really being considered at this level. And I think that's so powerful to invite like children into the process of naming what care looks like for them. Mm-hmm. And that really speaks to this sort of shared culture of change too, that like everyone is bought into this vision, including kids as young as eight, who I think under any other sort of prototypical kind of environment are sort of shunted to the side and treated like they don't totally understand these very complex structures when in fact they very much so do and are deeply affected by them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, just even earlier today. So I do focus groups with teachers too. And so I was doing... I, we, I did a couple actually with Haley um, over the past year, and I was analyzing the teacher surveys about those kind of focus groups that we did. And so many of the comments were like, it was so cool to like be included in this from the beginning. It was so cool to like meet teachers from other schools and to share with them and to like get to be a part of it. And I was just like, well, I'm so, I am like so moved and glad that you feel that way and that I was part of that. And also just like, you know, how can we make more of this? And why isn't this the norm already, right? Like, why are teachers so touched to be part of the process? Like, of course, they should be, they should be the first rung on the ladder for, you know, all initiatives that affect them. Mm -hmm. 
absolutely. And it reminds me a lot of this piece about human connection. Um, and I know, you know, with our eCornell model, this emphasis on human connection is the center, is the foundation of all other um, interactions. I'm curious how those two things come together for you um, with your work in the Philly School Districts. I so appreciate the focus on human connection in the eCornell space and then the Intergroup Dialogue Project, which we know and love dearly. Um, it reminds me of Rockwood Leadership Institute. They have a quote, equity work moves at the speed of trust. So I found in my work, right, equity work can't move forward if folks don't trust each other. So that could be adult adult, that could be adult student, it could be adult family member, right? We have to start with trust. We have to start with trusting relationships, part of that equity definition I shared earlier. So in the first professional development session we do with schools, yeah. we tell our stories. Uh, so there's an activity we do around telling our stories. Uh, there's another activity we do called conocimiento in Spanish, knowledge, right? Do we understand who's literally in the room? Like what are some of our own experiences that have led us to today? Uh, I start my new professional developments in a new community with my why, right? Who am I showing up in this space? What are my different identities? I think that's crucial to build trust in relationships. Um, and I think about the same thing from a student perspective, right? When you're a teacher and you're trying to build relationships with students, like, do they know who you are? Uh, and what I mean by that is like, do they really understand you from an interpersonal level past just, I'm teaching math, I'm teaching social studies, I'm teaching English. Um, there's a quote that a teacher shared with me this year um, that I challenged. And I think uh, she was able to kind of come afterwards, kind of full circle and understanding why I challenged. And she said, I come to school uh, to teach math. Um, and that's my job. And then I'll go home at the end of the day. And part of my response to her was, I absolutely hear you. And I'm hearing part of that. I know, Caitlin, you're like, he's doing Laura. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> and like, that is your job. Absolutely. And I also like understand and can like empathize as a former educator that like protection of time and work-life balance. Mm -hmm. And if we don't, it came as a response to thinking about like student identity, right? So like if we don't off also create spaces for students to be able to think about their identity, it's going to make the math learning a whole lot harder. And there's tons of academic data that backs that up, right? We have to start with the socio-emotional. We have to start with the student belongingness before we can advance academic outcomes. So I really focus on that connection piece, right? If we start from a place of trusting relationships, then we'll be able to advance our equity journey. If we start from understanding how do our identities impact, inform, and shape our lives' experiences, and how these experiences impact, shape, and inform how we show up as educators and folks in education, then we're going to be able to do uh, more of that systemic change, institution change work. But we have to start from that place of self-understanding. I have to give a two-second shout-out to a Lara statements, which is what we were just laughing about. So the in-group dialogue we do, like, it's our super, like, superpower, secret, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. But it just stands for listen, affirm, respond, add information. And so, um, you know, Dylan was joking that I can hear in his response. Like, you always start with the affirmation, and you add information, you respond. And so um, it's just like a, a tool that I feel like I use all the time, like, in DEI work, but also just in life of, like, how to communicate with others in a way that preserves connection. I love that. I love that. And it's, it's cool because it also, I think says maybe the aspect of relationships that we tend to forget to articulate or to really centralize. And, and that is that human beings don't operate as silos. You can't just switch off part of yourself when you enter the room and expect that you're not actually bringing your whole self with you to, to bear on that interaction or to bear on the relationships that you're forming. And, uh, and so to treat yourself as sort of a multidimensional being is actually a strength to you in that space and helps you to build connection and uh, maybe express empathy in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. 
Um, you've mentioned quite a bit that you work with people at multiple different levels within these learning systems, and you do exercises that operate between adults and also between students and between adults and students. And I'd really like to focus on the student piece for, for a minute, uh, whether it's working directly with students or the effects that these programs have on students by way of teacher training. What impact do you see of these initiatives on kids' learning, on their development, on the relationships with one another, like aside from the sort of, you know, self-reported uh, measures that, that you're taking of, of school climate, how do you see this sort of operationalizing in the classroom? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I'll start by saying to your point, my work mostly has looked like adults this year in the district, and mm -hmm. we've been able to this year push into some of stu uh, the student spaces in the district, and then next year we're going to pilot um, different student equity associations, SEAs across the districts. We're going to start with the 9 through 12 population. Um, but then the goal is to be able to expand that to middle schools as well. So this year, our department uh, did a town hall at a high school where students talked about microaggressions and how they've experienced them in their own education. All right. So to your question around like, what's the impact, like the first impact I've seen in some of these spaces where we've had moments like that um, has just been around student voice, students being able to feel like they have like that leadership and they've stepped into this space where they're able to speak up. Um, and lead in a space of equity. Um, the other uh, piece that I would share, I just did these focus groups I spoke to earlier across different schools. Uh, so the supports that I've provided really, although they're adult focused, they really impact the students in some tangible ways. So I wanted to share out right, what some of the staff shared. So the first staff member said, uh, quote, that her kids feel heard and listened to. Um, and she sees that in their willingness to open up. It's because they found adults that they feel like they want to open up to. The relationships are being built, which is important to move equity work forward. It's a huge challenge, but adults are moving towards the mindset that what kids are saying is valuable, and that leads to better instruction and better relationships. So I feel like what's really powerful in hearing those words, right, is like we're recentering student voice also to be like, this is the thing when we think about equity work, like hearing from students and starting from students from stakeholder engagement perspective, right, is how we're going to inform our work. I think another one that I really loved was this came from a school counselor thinking about personally, I now have a relationship with one of our transgender students. I understand much more of what they're dealing with and they're more accepting of when I mistake. Every now and then this person comes up to me and hugs me. I'm more equipped to be an advocate for this individual. We've been, uh, we've impacted many students without this work, uh, with this work, excuse me. All right, so I think about like the specific skills. I think that's a great example of like the skill of that's a school that got training around like what does inclusive language look like for trans students? What does LGBTQ identity, first of all, mean and how does it impact how students experience school? That skill then led to this teacher being able to build this relationship with a student that they didn't have before. And then I think about the last example, which I think is one of the most powerful, I'm sure things that uh, people have maybe heard before, right, is a teacher shared that students know better than the adults. They'll call people by whatever name and pronouns they want. This same teacher told me, and it will stick with me forever, like, I'm on this team because I need to catch up with my students. They're already far ahead, right? They have the language, they know, right, what it means to be equitable. They understand what it means uh, to treat people, not just with respect, but then also with like specific equitable attention to different parts of who they are. Um, I think that's a great example, right, of like students are already engaging in these conversations, right? They're already seeing different things happen, whether it be through social media, whether it be on the news, uh, and they're already talking about all of these things. So one of the big benefits of being able to like start and build out something like a student equity association is that we're going to give voice to the students in the school district of Philadelphia, right? So it's not just 
what they're seeing on social media. It's not just what they're seeing on the news. What are students in this district saying about their own experience and their own identities? So then they'll lead and drive this work district-wide as well. That's the hope. I never realized it until I just heard you talking about it now, but a lot of this work is intergenerational bridge building, right? Like a lot of uh, teachers there about a generation apart. I even think about it when I work with undergrads and they're like Gen Z and they're making like, I try to like learn their music references and like, you know, like learn some of the language. And um, it strikes me as really powerful because like creating that connection, I think is at the heart of a lot of the, the work that I do with play and using play to like, as it means for connection. And um, I think I saw this article like the other day, I think it's, it was from Ted Lasso. It was about like the importance of intergenerational friendships and like, you know, obviously teacher student is a different context, but I think it's so powerful to have those skills to connect across generation too. Um, and we love to ask Dylan about misconceptions around your work um, and, you know, all of our guests kind of work. What are some of the biggest misconceptions and what do you think kind of needs to happen to uh, address some of those? So many. <laughs> yes. um, I think we'll start with top of mind, right? One that just I got asked the other day and that I, I hear a lot, right? Is if we're having a training on race that it just has to do with our black and brown students. Right? If we're having a training on LGBTQ identity that it just has to do with our LGBTQ students, right? When we think about our equity definition in the district, it says starting with historically marginalized populations. So yes, it means that we are starting and centering with our black and brown students, with our LGBTQ uh, students. But for example, if we think about a training I lead called supporting LGBTQ students, it's also about all of our students. That's something I really have to remind folks, right? Because sometimes you'll see folks might enter into this detour of saying, well, we only have two or three students in our school. To which my response would be, well, that means that we need to have this training for those two or three students. Like, and it's also about all of our students. It's all about cis identifying students as well, right? Because the stereotypes that we're perpetuating inside and outside of the classroom as it relates to gender hurts all of our students. It hurts our cis male students in teaching them that there's only one way of expressing their gender. It hurts our cis female students in teaching certain ways and certain notions of femininity or masculinity, right? So I think grounding people in this understanding, like equity work, uh, is not just for a specific group of people. It's actually for all of our students. It's about teaching white students what it means to be white. It means engaging right, white students in conversations about race because we can't not engage in that conversation. Because as I spoke to earlier, students are already doing it. So our students are 75% of students that are Black and Latinx in the district mm -hmm. don't have a choice as to whether or not they're going to engage in conversations about race. Right? So something we talk about with staff is right the ability to choose about whether you want to engage in a conversation is in itself a form of privilege, regardless of identity marker. So I think about it as like yeah. framing with staff, let's meet students where they already are. I think about what that teacher said earlier, right? Catching up to students because they're already so far ahead. They're already having these conversations and students notice when adults don't yeah. have the conversation. I think about that district-wide survey question, adults from my school have conversations about race-related events in the media when they happen. I think about during the pandemic, and we think about the rise in police brutality and some educators who didn't engage in the conversation, I think about the impact that has on a student and coming to a classroom, how that student might feel in a space when it feels like what is explicit is not even being named. Um, the other misconception that comes up a lot is this doesn't have to do with me. Oh, this is another training. This is another thing that I'm going to sit in here and I'm going to tune in for 45 minutes and then I'm going to go on and live the rest of my life. Um, 
I can't control what people do past right the time that I'm with them. Um, and what I encourage people to think about is spheres of influence. So I know, right, Caleb from IDP, like we are very familiar with that framework of thinking about like, it doesn't just also have to be work. Like what I encourage people to think about is like, ideally you're also seeing this show up in your personal sphere of influence. Dr. Tatum uh, talks about, um, quote, each of us needs to find our own sources of courage so that we will begin to speak. I've seen that meaningful dialogue can lead to effective action. And so one of the eCornell courses Kayla and I facilitate is called dialogue across difference, right? Because just the simple act of dialoguing is starting somewhere. So for folks that feel super overwhelmed and they're like, well, this doesn't have to do with me. And like, maybe they shut down coming from a place of detour or just like that feeling of overwhelmingness. What I encourage people to think about is start somewhere that might even be interpersonal. It might even be outside of work, right? It might be going home, having a dialogue with a partner, having a dialogue with a family member having a dialogue with a neighbor, right? that's a starting point because then that's going to start to encourage you to lean more into that discomfort on a day-to-day basis. And then certainly I'd be remiss if we didn't touch before ending on some of the biggest misconceptions around DEI and education as it relates to the political rhetoric. Um, and I know you talked about this earlier in the intro. What I uh, remind folks uh, at this current point in time is it's actually not possible in my mind to not take a stand and to not speak when we are seeing across the country, right, the uh, explicit and intentional um, uh, deliberate um, anti-DEI policies, right, passing of book bans, prohibited uh, curricular uh, measures such as AP African American studies, right, amongst many others. So right now at this point in time, like we're either on the right side of history or we're not. And I encourage folks to think about like a stance of equality right now isn't enough because a lot of folks, right, we're thinking about right, what is the thing that's preventing our students from getting in the room? And we're seeing specific efforts that are being made. I think about the affirmative action ruling that just happened to prohibit them from getting in the room. Like there are people that are explicitly saying, I'm going to pass something so that a black and brown student, so that right, we think about different um, metrics of uh, inequity that are being passed, such as uh, don't say gay, right? So that an LGBTQ student can't walk into a space Um, and feel like they can be affirmed. So many folks that are passing these DEI laws and feel that DEI efforts are quote unquote infringing upon their rights. I think a lot of that is coming from a place of a misunderstanding of equality versus equity, right? Equity actually isn't saying that we're gonna treat everyone the same. We can't do that because it hasn't worked historically in education. So it says we're gonna look at the interpersonal, interpersonal, institutional and structural discrimination that our historically marginalized students have faced. Um, right. So it's not taking away, if we use this metaphor of a fruit bowl, right? It's not taking away your fruit. It's actually just saying, like, you've already had a whole bowl. You've had a whole farmer's market, right? In some cases. <laughs> it's just trying to say, like, yeah. how can we make sure some students have some fruit, right? To get to the point where then they're able uh, to see fruition, right, of their education. So I think about the words of Dr. Tatum. She writes in her book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, which is just an outstanding read. I recommend it to anyone listening. She writes, racism's like smog in the air. Sometimes it's so thick it's visible. Other times it's less apparent, but always day in and day out, we're breathing it in. If we live in a smoggy place, how can we avoid breathing in the air? End quote. And certainly the metaphor is timely with the current air quality, right? <laughs> All of us are thinking about breathing in. Very true, right? So I would just encourage people to think about like racism is the air. Right? So, so for people that are like, oh, I don't want to engage in a conversation about race. You can't avoid breathing the air, right? So it's just the the uh, decision uh, to lean into the discomfort, 
right? It's the acceptance of that lack of closure that might happen after some of these conversations, after some of these ongoing learning moments. It's the commitment uh, to the great unlearn, right? as many folks say. Um, and as Brene Brown encouraged us to think about too, right? It's also the commitment and the choice to be vulnerable and to say sometimes we don't know and we're all learning and we're all growing. And our students and staff and our communities depend on our growing and our learning and our actions of today. Uh, so we have to act uh, and we have to make sure that when each of us right, takes the stance towards equity in our specific spaces, uh, that we're doing so affirmatively and we're doing so knowing that students and staff depend on it. So beautifully put. Um, I was totally going to ask you about the future of DEI, and I think you just summed it up so beautifully for us. <laughs> the great unlearn. I love this idea of like, you know, continuously like learning and unlearning as we go through these spaces. Yeah. I love the idea of a farmer's market. <laughs> like that's DEI work is like in, in a tagline, like make room at the farmer's market. <laughs> like there's enough fruit for all and we have to make sure everyone has access to it. Um, I, yeah, I just like, I really appreciate your, your wisdom and your uh, experience that you've brought um, in sharing about your work with us. Yeah, I love this. This has been such a fabulous conversation and I have learned so much. So thank you so much for chatting with us. And I have to ask out of my own curiosity too, Dylan, where do you um, see yourself in a couple years or um, where's the evolution of your work kind of headed or where do you hope it heads? Yeah, I, I see a PhD in my future. Ooh, um, join the club. <laughs> <laughs> When you were talking about data, I was like, you got to, someone's got to analyze all that. Like, <laughs> I, am, I mean, I'm so interested, right, in racial equity, uh, LGBTQ equity in education, right? All of these different avenues through which, like, we can, uh, can and should think about how students experience K-12 education differently. Mm -hmm. um, K-12 is, like, where my heart is. So if I had to guess, like, what route I would go uh, from a PhD perspective, it would, it would be there. Um, the other thing I'm really interested in, right, and I'm, going to see how this kind of plays out in the coming years with our district is this access to uh, data to inform us how do LGBTQ students experience education. That's been a personal research interest of mine for a long time. Um, and it's something that is like near and dear to my heart. Um, and there's no more like pressing time, as I mentioned, than right now to think about that question. Yeah. Uh, so as that research continues to evolve right throughout the field overall, I'm really curious to see like what are those different entry points to explore how queer students in K through 12 schools experience that space differently than their straight counterparts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can't think of a better person to be on the forefront of that research, you know, and moving it forward. So you'll have to come back in five years when you're a doctor. <laughs> Tell us about all of your new journeys in the field. Yeah. So that's all we have for you this time. Curious listeners, check back next month for more great content from the table. And in the meantime, give us a like if you liked this episode, subscribe and follow if you loved it, and we'll see you next month.